you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. Violence against Asian Americans is not a recent thing. It goes back way before the pandemic began and has always had with it a thick layer of mental stress that can really break someone who doesn't know how to get help. We'll hear about some options on how to get that help. Plus, everything you need to know about getting back on the roller coaster without panicking. It's all ahead on Take Two. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for joining us. Bars, movie theaters, theme parks are all getting ready to reopen as Los Angeles and Orange Counties move into the orange tier. Riverside County actually looks like uh, they're going to be following soon as well. We're going to bring you more on the first movie releases you could actually see on the big screen, as well as a nervous person's guide to theme park reopenings. That nervous person be me. All right, first, though, we're going to turn to a community hurting during the pandemic in two different ways. Now, Asian Americans, they've had to deal with coronavirus and something as just terrible as racism. Now, the issue got national attention after a gunman in Atlanta killed eight earlier this month, including six women of Asian descent. Headlines and videos on social media depict images of Asian Americans harassed and violently attacked. And spike in hate crimes led President Biden announcing an anti-Asian hate initiative just yesterday. But really, the history of anti-Asian racism in this country goes back a lot further, centuries in fact, to when Asians were barred from even entering the country. What's happened during the pandemic is that racism is just now more out in the open. And since Atlanta, the attacks have only continued. KPCC's Josie Huang covers Asian American communities and says that many people are feeling anger, fear, sadness, or really a mix of all of the above. And that can really take a physical and mental toll. Josie talked to five Asian American therapists for some ways to process what's happening. Uh, Josie, uh, welcome back. Hi. Hi. Now, you've been reporting on the surge in anti-Asian hate incidents for more than a year now. If you could just briefly tell us where we're at now. Right. So uh, last year, there were some 3,800 reports of anti-Asian hate around the country. And in L.A., in our backyard, we saw about a 114 percent increase in cases being looked into as hate crimes. And we've known this has been happening. You know, this has been egged on by some people in high places um, in elected office, like President, former President Trump, um, you know, connecting the virus, uh, coronavirus to China. And, and but what's made um, things worse, more traumatic uh, for folks witnessing all this is we keep seeing graphic examples of these these assaults since last year. And this week, a video out of New York showed a 65-year-old Filipino-American woman who was walking to church, getting kicked in the head repeatedly by her assailant. And you see a doorman standing nearby shut the door on her. And that sparked a lot of outrage and despair because it shows that even after the physical threat posed by the assailant is gone, bystanders continue to ignore her plight. That's really weighed heavily on a lot of Asian Americans who are on edge right now. I talked to Jessica Chen Fang of Loma Linda University in Claremont about how there's this collective trauma and how that's leading to a lot of painful questions right now about race and uh, racial identity. 
there is a curiosity as an Asian American person where you've always wondered, you know, do I belong? Oh, okay. Oh, you no, know, that coworker or that neighbor was so kind and welcoming. Maybe it's, it's not so bad. And then something really bad happens and it reinforces this fear you have. And I think when we saw these, you know, six Asian American women killed, that brings us to a whole nother level, does something to our psyches. And these um, hate incidents, they haven't let up since uh, Atlanta incidents being everything from verbal attacks to shunning to physical assault. In a new survey from AAPI data out this week, one in 10 Asian Americans say they've experienced a hate incident so far just in 2021. As states like California continue to open up, there's potentially more opportunities to have run-ins with racists. And that's something Chen Fen told me is in the back of a lot of people's minds, including herself. And I got to admit, Josie, you know, you know, my family, my, my granddaughters are half Japanese and I, I'm just worried about them every single day, just in general, but especially now. So it's a very, very intense time. And that's why you decided to get in touch with therapists about this. Yeah, I I figured they would have a better handle on how people should process what's going on right now, because you've got um, concern about your your granddaughters. You know, a lot of people are concerned about elders. There's anger and frustration that some of the incidents that were um, seeing the news are not being treated as serious hate crimes like the shootings in Atlanta. And for many Asian American women, Atlanta has been especially emotionally triggering because of almost a lifetime for many of these women of being harassed and fetishized for just simply being. There's also the old memories of experiencing racism oneself that's being dredged up by these um, terrible news events, memories of feeling disempowered from when you were bullied as as a kid to situations as adults where responding as you would have liked to would have been unsafe. Uh, I spoke with Helen Kim, who's a therapist in Sierra Madre, and she remembers being called dirty Chinese in Spanish when she was growing up in Koreatown. We're all remembering and our bodies are all remembering those moments. And it's like those moments that we didn't give it justice, right? We just felt like this is just who we are and this is how society is. We just accepted it. Kim and other therapists told me that Part of why many Asian Americans may not have addressed race much in their lives is that they grew up in households where that wasn't something um, parents like to dwell on. Also in this country, conversations around race often center on this black-white binary. And while many Asian Americans are affected by the same systemic racism as other people of color, you know, the, the income gap is widest among Asian Americans, for example. You know, you have undocumented Asian immigrants who are under threat of deportation. Despite all that, many Asian Americans on paper look to be thriving. And some of the therapists told me that there's this sense that their lot is better than other BIPOC folks, so they minimize or, or stay quiet about the racism that they receive. So, you know, you have that going on. And at the same time, people are grappling with these, um, you know, threats of danger. Um, you know, so that's competing for their attention along with these complicated feelings about racism. So you have fear of physical assault, especially present for many women and um, older Asians too. And women have been reporting hate incidents to the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center at more than twice the rate of men since last year. Uh, Helen Kim, the therapist I just mentioned, she's been even more nervous about her safety since Atlanta. I think even as I go out now, I'm looking around more. I'm thinking twice about my safety, even just compared to two weeks ago. And so I think that is a natural response as like our guards are up even higher. I've spoken to multiple women who are buying pepper spray, um, whistles, tasers, not just for themselves, but for their loved ones that are now self-defense courses marketed to Asian American women with proceeds going to the victims of Atlanta. And that's completely understandable. People have to maybe cope by at least feeling like they can defend themselves. What kind of strategies, though, are are therapists suggesting? Well, they're saying if carrying pepper spray and taking self-defense courses makes you feel better, then by all means do that. But also make sure you take care of your mental and physical health as well, because if you're not addressing feelings like stress and fear, um, it'll manifest itself physically through insomnia, for example, digestive issues, uh, anxiety. So um, ways you do that is through self-care, which I guess we should be doing year round, right? But, um, you know, things like sleep hygiene, eating well, avoiding excessive alcohol, drugs, perhaps turning off notifications on your phone so that you're not bombarded with news about traumatic events out of the blue, not looking at your phone 
before bed. Also, you can turn off auto replay on social media sites like Twitter. So videos of say older Asians getting assaulted won't be played on repeat every time you log on. It's also very important to find outlets for your emotions. Maybe it's through journaling or through art or music. Talking to a therapist is also um, a very uh, effective way to channel those emotions. Talking to trusted friends. For some people, it's been attending vigils, protests, um, or donating or volunteering with organizations that serve the community. Still, for others, uh, these therapists reminded me that maybe the best thing is not to let the news dictate their lives, and they maybe want to do nothing in, at all and carry on as usual. There really is no one size fits all. Now, one of the things, Josie, that I've uh, that's been recommended for allies that I've seen is, is to get bystander training in the event of a racist attack. You know, I've wondered what about for the person who's actually being attacked. Yeah, I talked to the therapist about this who said it's important to be prepared, not just physically, but mentally. Um, Lance Tango is a therapist based in Pasadena who said it was very helpful, if potentially uncomfortable, to imagine scenarios where you're accosted. So you need to assess your safety before deciding to engage, but, um, you know, and you need to protect yourself and just get away from that person if it's not a safe situation. But should you deem yourself safe to respond, maybe think about what you would say ahead of time. And that could keep you from kicking yourself later, being wish you had done this or that, or said this or that. Another very interesting thing Lance talked about is addressing bystanders who do nothing to intervene. And, you know, as I mentioned, there was that video in New York where we saw, you know, um, bystanders ignoring the situation. In other videos I've seen, um, there's bystanders just filming it instead of helping. Some are even egging on the assailant. So Tango said, um, speaking from his own experience and that of his clients, when bystanders do nothing, that leaves targets of hate feeling ashamed or paranoid about what they just experienced. It's a very strange after effect to have something happen and then to see the world around us just move on like nothing happened. And so I even think we should give ourselves permission that if somebody says something awful to us and there are bystanders around, to say to those bystanders, did you see what just happened to me? Did you just see that? That was awful. What it does for us afterwards, it leaves us not having to question whether or not this thing happened to me. What we've just now done is we put some of that burden on the bystanders and now they have to process it too. I've unconsciously used a strategy. I mean, I, I didn't think I was doing it explicitly where I look around and say, seriously, did you just see what that uh, person did? Yeah. But I know moving forward, I hope I don't have to, but I will consciously use a strategy as well. Joseph, you were mentioning earlier about concern people had for some of the most vulnerable to attack uh, older Asians. How do you check in on their mental health? Because I know just just from my culture, you know, my family growing up and the people that I knew, um, you know, for Latinas, there's a lot of stigma about talking about mental health or actually talking to someone about your mental health, getting therapy, things like that. So how do you approach this issue with older folks? So I've been, always been able to talk about mental health issues with my mom um, without any issues, but my dad, he's another story. So I got tips from uh, Melissa Matugas, who's a therapist in LA about how to bring up mental health with an older relative who's more reluctant to get into it with you. So she recommends using open-ended questions as opposed to questions that will just elicit a yes or no. And that may look like, you know, mom, did you see that in New York, Asian hate crimes have increased by 1900%. Did you read that? What do you think about that? I like to focus around ways to bring up discussions without pushing too much of the how are you feeling on people, because that can be a very raw question to somebody that's not used to talking about those things. Matugas points out that there are some older folks who are actually not worried at all about being tagged. I've certainly met people say they're more worried than their parents are. That's KPCC's Josie Huang covering Asian American communities for KPCC. Uh, Josie, thank you very much. Thanks, Abe. All right, now we'll hear about uh, the rise in anti-Asian hate being felt through the perspective of Katherine Kim, who runs an oral history workshop at the Koreatown Youth and Community Center. Four of the women killed in the Atlanta area shootings were Korean, and that sparked an intergenerational dialogue with the high school students in Katherine's workshop about how to navigate life as Korean-American women in a climate where there's already so much uncertainty. Last summer, students in my workshop asked some elders in Koreatown about their experiences with racism in America. In this recording, 17-year-old Sharon Sung talks with 75-year-old Jong Park 
about being discriminated against at a grocery store in Bakersfield. Park said the cashier bagged groceries for all of the white customers, but not for her. She was frustrated that she couldn't stand up for herself because of the language barrier. And then, over the next few months, the anti-Asian violence started to surge. Slurs turned to acid attacks and face lashings, a fear seated long ago resurfaced into hypervigilance. Recently, I moved to Mount Washington. It's this bucolic enclave in Northeast LA. But then my new neighbor was outraged that we were hammering a nail in the hallway. He came over and screamed, go back to your country of origin. Ever since my husband and I have fretted about our physical safety, we've asked each other, do you think he has a gun? When Denny Kim, a 27-year-old U.S. Air Force veteran, was attacked in a hate crime in Koreatown, I called my son, who's about the same age. Watch your back, I told him. Since most of my students were born and raised in Koreatown, I've worried about them too, especially after the Atlanta shootings where four of the victims were Korean women. Over Zoom last week, 16-year-old Jaden Kim told me she tried to hide being Asian in her own community. It is a little bit scarier to walk around in Koreatown. Um, I remember I was walking somewhere with my friend the other day, and then this guy called out to us, and then we started running because we didn't want him to see that um, we were Asian, and then he started like following us. That was kind of scary. As we were running, my friend was like, I don't want to get hate crime today. Like That was kind of, like we were joking. Jaden's words pierced me, how casually she considered being targeted. The use of hate crime as a verb, I don't want to get hate crime today, is how Koreatown teenagers have normalized the rise in violence against our community. Most of the youth in my program are teenage girls. We talk about how racialized sexualization is embroidered into our identities in America. Here's 17-year-old Abigail Un. There were two white guys that I met in a social setting, and when they saw me, they were like, oh my God, you're so cute, like an anime character. And we usually call this yellow fever when an individual is obsessed with Asian women, particularly made me feel so weird and uncomfortable because I felt like I was just being sexualized for the fact that I was Asian. And it just felt extremely dehumanizing to be only seen for how I look, not my personality, not my intellect, nothing else. It's just the fact that I was Asian. Can I ask when you guys first heard the term yellow fever, what grade were you in? I was in seventh grade, I think. I was like 12. Yeah, I think around like eighth grade for me. Yeah. Yeah, middle school. So by the time these girls were in middle school, they were already aware of being fetishized. For this generation, these stereotypes are compounded by anime and hentai. So yeah. my generation didn't have anime girls. So what is uh-huh. that? Basically, it's just like hypersexualized cartoon characters. This is 17-year-old Kaylee Beck. Often they're like schoolgirls. They're our age, younger than us. They're like usually Asian. They're drawn with crazy proportions. But I know that that's also part of the problem, that that kind of stuff flies under the radar, but it's actually a symptom of something more systematic. When I think about the six Asian women who were murdered in Atlanta, what keeps replaying in my head is their last moments. A shaft of light in the late afternoon at a workplace where they didn't want to be. What was the outline for their aspirations? When they thought of their families, were they longing for them? Many of them were mothers, single mothers, grandmothers, immigrants who could have raised the young women in my program. Now, grief around their deaths is mobilizing these girls to resist anti-Asian stereotypes and violence. Through storytelling, these conversations are beginning to uproot the hate. That was Catherine Kim. She runs an oral history workshop at the Koreatown Youth and Community Center. Kim's story comes to us from the California Report. All right, well, thankfully, not all of the news around Asian Americans this year has had horrible violence along with it. Coming up, 
The story of the Oscar-nominated film Minari. It's about a Korean-American immigrant family chasing a dream. And it's a really uplifting story, and I think we need that. It's coming up next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. The Oscar-nominated film Minari is about a Korean-American family that moves from California to a farm in Arkansas in the early 1980s. It's loosely based on the family experiences of writer-director Lee Isaac Chung. Minari is nominated in six Oscar categories, including Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Actor. I spoke with the film's producer, Christina O, oh, named herself a nominee for the film in the category of Best Picture, and she explained how she first found the script for Minari and why it, took out, it stood out from the others. Stephen Yun, who plays Jacob in the film, we met on a film we did together called Okja several years ago and kind of... Um, developed a friendship over the years and we were hanging out one day he told me about this script and asked if I'd read it and I you know had to admit to him I was like oh I haven't heard about this Mm -hmm. and he was kind of like you know it's a really interesting piece that delves into sort of some of the background that we've kind of grown up in and subsequently that same day Isaac's agents also sent me the script so that's the director the director writer yeah the writer director uh, Lee Isaac Chung so it was like I got to read this now. Um, and I think post Okja, I was sent a lot of like Korean material or Asian material. And also at, the, at that time, there's a lot of talk about immigration stuff. So we, mm-hmm. we've been sent a lot of those kind of stories. So I was a little bit, I don't want to say hesitant, but a little bit like, okay, like, let me see what this is. And upon reading it, I had never read anything that felt so, so like, I connected to it on a, on a human emotional level, which I hadn't really done with anything before. And so I told my colleagues, Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner at the company, like, Hey, I, 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 I came across this script. I'm really connecting to it. And, they were like, yeah, if you want to make it, go for it. Yeah, and it is a story that really connects to a lot of people. I mean, just aside from it being a, a you know an immigrant American experience, um, and I'm thinking, Christina, because it's a common and quintessential touchstone of American life, that immigrant experience. So I want to play an example of that from the film. This is when the children, David and Anne, were socializing with other kids after church who are white. Now, first, Anne is approached by a girl who had a question about the Korean language. Hey, can you stop me if I say something in your language? Um, sure. Chinga chinga chong chima chima choo? Why is your face so flat? It isn't. My name is John. What's yours? David. Nice to meet you, David. Hey, David! Oh, that means I in Korean. 
That is so neat. I mean, Christina, that that scene right there, I think every immigrant family has a story or two or ten like that. (laughs) You know, actually, that's a really interesting that you picked that clip because that's the very scene that Stephen and I talked about before I read the script. He was like, particularly this one scene and the way Isaac kind of creates this environment of talking about something without really like being being overly, you know, overly whatever you want to call it about immigration or growing up a kid of immigrants. That's really funny that you picked up on that. I think any kid of immigrants kind of went through that sort of thing. Uh, My parents are very much immigrants from Korea and I grew up in a sort of rural suburb that had a very, you know, you have those things where kids, kids say stuff and they're not trying to be, they're not trying to be mean. They're just trying to understand something that they've never encountered before. And I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's an interesting to traverse in because especially I think for kids like you know when I was a kid or Isaac and Stephen where we feel very much part of this sort of Americanness right we speak English and we speak it fluently but at home we speak Korean and our parents only speak to us Korean so it's like we're kind of straddling the hyphen in, in our descriptor, whether it's Korean American, it's like you got one foot on the Korean side and one foot on the American side and just constantly having to navigate that. And I think, uh, you know, that scene in particular really showcases a little bit of what kids of immigrants go through. Now, you know, as I'm watching Minari and I'm seeing the Korean family trying to fit in with their white neighbors in rural Arkansas, I got to admit, uh, Christina, I was I was wondering when the racial violence scene was going to happen. It didn't. It didn't. And I was completely relieved. Uh, you know, how much do you think that factors into why people like the film? Because, you know, their story in this film, their struggle is not necessarily based on their race or their identity. I think that, you know, we purposely built it that way because I think what we really wanted to highlight was the things that everyone, every, a lot of immigrant families have to deal with at home, not just sort of the out external factors, but there's a lot also in terms of like keeping a family together and raising kids and trying to succeed in your profession and also trying to attain this idea of the American dream. For us, it kind of was like, we didn't want that sort of external thing to pull away from that sort of emotionality. And also we don't really need to see it in order to really understand what this family's going through and um, wanting to really focus on that aspect of it and not sort of have that be a distraction or a kind of like a, I don't want to say a false point of emotion, because I do think a lot of people did at that time. And even now they are, you know, assaulted and there's crazy stuff happening today, but we did want to focus on this family when we told this story. We're talking to Christina O, oh, producer of Minari. All right, uh, Christina, now to the Golden Globes. Minari gets nominated in the foreign language film category, even though, as I as I laid out earlier, it was made in America. How did you react when that nomination came down? Look, I think the Globes have their own rules uh, that they, I don't know when they were created, but times are changing. And of course, when we found this out, I, I think it's a complicated thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm an American, so American producers produce the film. Our production company is American. A24 is an American distribution company. Isaac and Steven are American. We shot this in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in America, if you didn't know. Um, as American as it so gets. It's a bit fast. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty American as it gets. Yeah, so I think for us, it was it, it, it's a constant reminder, right, that we are, as I said, kind of straddling that line. We're not, it's like we're constantly reminded that all right, so the film's not in English, even though it's very much feels like an American story to us that, you know, it's it's still foreign. So I think in that aspect, of course, we were a bit disheartened. But at the same time, if we can be part of the conversation to progress the rules or change them or get people to talk about it, it's something that I can be really proud of. Yeah, because, you know, I was I, I thought a lot about this, Christina, and, and the United States does not have an official language. So it's not as if, uh, you know, the, the language in Minari is some unofficial language that is not spoken in the U.S. Millions of Koreans live in the U.S. and speak Korean. So, you know, I get, yeah, it's complicated and it's not exactly, you know, the, the rules aren't exactly maybe updated to 2021. But, you know, when I see this movie get labeled in the way it was, it, it kind of 
help, it makes me connect the dots, I think, a little bit to being labeled as an other. You know, like you're not here, from here. So you're from somewhere else and you're that other. And, you know, you mentioned the violent attacks on Asians in the U.S. I mean, I, it maybe isn't directly linked, but there's got to be some connection. Well, I think that it's, you're kind of touching on it. It's a constant reminder that we're still, there's still yet so much yet to be achieved in terms of equality. And I think, look, if this is, if, if this becomes a tool to highlight some of that, then great. Like, let, let's all talk about it and work towards becoming that melting pot that we are. Oh, I want to ask you one last thing, Christina. You've been a producer with Plan B Entertainment for around 10 years. You worked on, you mentioned the film uh, Okja, and also the last uh, Black Man in San Francisco, now Minari. What kinds of film pitches are you getting now, and what kind of stories are you looking to make uh, with movies? The things that get pitched to us range from, like, weird animation things to, you know, huge biopics and, like, even big franchise films. So there really isn't sort of like a... For, for us, there doesn't seem to be a limit, and we're really excited to explore all that stuff. Me personally, I think I like telling stories like Last Black Man and Minari, where it's very much rooted in human emotions and it's very character driven. And uh, and that that's like I think where my heart lies in terms of storytelling, just really having it center on strong character and voices, and being able to also provide sort of a connective tissue to an audience to those emotions that's christina o producer of the film minari christina thanks a lot thanks for having me All right, so not only are movie theaters opening up more and more in the next uh, few days, but Comic-Con, Comic-Con is scheduled to be on this year. Thing is, no one no one's going to want to go. I'll tell you why when Take 2 continues. Uh, stay with us. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. Godzilla vs. Kong hits HBO Max and movie theaters today, and it's expected to have a big box office impact, especially with the pandemic. Plus, when getting an Oscar nomination makes you happy and sad. It's time to go on a lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. All right, Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter, is here. Rebecca, theaters in L.A. County are cleared to move up to 50% capacity now that uh, the orange tier is here. And, uh, Rebecca, how is the timing of this perfect for both, for both uh, movie makers, movie theaters, and moviegoers? Well, Warner's Godzilla vs. Kong is out right now. As you say, it's also on HBO Max for 31 days. And this movie looks like it may be the new uh, weekend winner, uh, pandemic best at the box office. It's estimated to make 20 to 30 million uh, between now and Sunday. It has booked more than 10,000 private screening watch parties in the U.S. It's also it's in 3,000 theaters or 6,000 screens. That's the most for any wide release during the pandemic, including Tenet and uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Rebecca, you remember like old stories of sailors would say that uh, sirens are calling them to the you know to the shore and their ships would crash. <laughs> the That's what Godzilla versus Kong is for me. It is calling is it? me. It is calling. Are you gonna go? 
Ugh, probably not, but I'm yeah. conflicted. I'm very, very conflicted. Yeah. But we'll see. I might just sneak in by myself. All right, so speaking yeah. of timing, uh, this time the bad kind of timing. Last April, uh, Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, announced that uh, it was canceling the event for the first time in its 50-year history, and everyone went, aw. But now organizers have announced they've scheduled a comeback, so everyone's going, yay, but not really. Rebecca, tell us why no one seems to be happy about it. Well, uh, San Diego Comic-Con has scheduled its event for Thanksgiving weekend, which maybe if you're local (laughs) could seem fun, you know, after you've had your turkey on Friday, the family's together, you could theoretically go to Comic-Con. But the problem is that Comic-Con is dependent on studios bringing the stars and, and the filmmakers from their big shows and films, and those people would have to fly in either on Thanksgiving Day or before that, perhaps to participate. That is really unpopular with Hollywood right now when it looks like Thanksgiving will be the first big holiday where people are vaccinated and able to spend time with their families. So it's going over like a lead balloon with the industry people who need to participate. Yeah, that's an expensive travel week. So first off, yeah, who has the money to send, as you said, all those performers out there? And and so and what actor would want to give up their first post vaccine holiday family gathering weekend to go to be with geeks in San Diego? Well, I mean, that's the <laughs> I'm dilemma. A geek. I'm Normally, a geek, Rebecca. I can say that. Yeah, well, that, that's that's the dilemma. And normally people go because their studios compel them. Yeah. You know, it's a contractual thing and they're promoting some movie that they want to do really well or TV show that they want to do really well. Easy to get people to do it in the heat of the summer when they can just go down for an afternoon. Harder, I think, in this travel environment that is still not going to be normal, even with vaccination rates, you know, presumably much higher by November, it's still not going to be the easiest thing in the world to get people to travel from faraway places, particularly when this is their first opportunity to spend a holiday with family, potentially. Halloween, Rebecca, why not on Halloween weekend or something like that? If there's a week, that's one of the, you know, possibilities that people had, had been proposing. It sounds like uh, from our reporting that Comic-Con did not sort of run this by the studios before they made this decision, and they that that may have been a bad move. All right, we're going to continue our stroll through Hollywood, this time in Georgia, as politics and content production might be at an interesting crossroads. Uh, what's happening in the Peach State, Rebecca? Well, Georgia just passed these very controversial new election laws. There's ID requirements for absentee voting, um, limits on ballot drop boxes. They've made it illegal to give food or water to voters in line. And a lot of voting groups and Democrats have been vocal in their opposition to these laws. Biden called it, um, quote, Jim Crow in the 21st century. And some people in Hollywood are calling for a boycott of Georgia which is a very busy production hub. Um, a lot of the Marvel movies have been shot in Georgia. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari director James Mangold is one of the people who's spoken up. Mark Hamill also has launching the hashtag no more filming in Georgia. Yeah, but as you said, you know, so Georgia produces a lot of content. That means it employs a lot of people above and below the line. So wouldn't a, a boycott by Hollywood be counterproductive for Hollywood? Well, one key person who thinks so is Tyler Perry, who is based in Atlanta and has a huge studio there. And he is pointing out, you know, how much Georgia has changed politically, that it has two new Democratic senators. Um, And he is saying, you know, you don't want to hurt all of the middle class people who have these jobs working on these Hollywood productions. Um, Stacey Abrams has not weighed in on this specifically, but in the past, She has said, while she respects boycotts, she doesn't think it's the, quote, most effective strategic choice for change, um, because this has come up before where Hollywood has threatened to boycott Georgia over prior laws and abortion law uh, was one of them. Um, And ultimately, Stacey Abrams at that at that time did not want Hollywood to do that. She hasn't said what she wants this time. Talking to Rebecca Keegan of The Hollywood Reporter. Now, if anyone uh, knows about Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's uh, that uh, maybe it came out a couple of weeks ago, if anyone knows anything, and then it's four hours long. So those two things are right. But, uh, Rebecca, there's a lot more to it, including the the big fan revolt that not only pushed it to the screen, but also left uh, a pretty ugly stain on its story. Tell us uh, the, the quick backstory. Right. Well, in 2017, Snyder started to make Justice League, um, but he left the project when his daughter died. Joss Whedon took it over. The movie didn't do well, and fans were very unhappy. They started this sort of online campaign, released the Snyder Cut. 
Um, years later, Warner Brothers did give Snyder the green light to do that, and he finished his, his version of Justice League. And the fans partly had something to do with that. So that fan effort, uh, it, if it had just been asking Warner Brothers to let Snyder make his version, that would have been one thing. But Rebecca, how did it cross the line? Well, there's a kind of small but vocal group of DC Comics fans who used social media to threaten, harass Warner Media executives, um, journalists, other fans who may not completely agree with them. And uh, on March 22nd, in, in, ver- in a variety interview, Warner Media CEO Ann Sarnoff condemned their behavior. And it was kind of striking to hear an executive point out that uh, this kind of behavior from fans is not acceptable. Yeah, because yeah, normally they, they stay silent, right? They don't really mess with that. They don't. I mean, if you remember back in 2016, um, when there was the female-led Ghostbusters coming out, it was sort of savagely attacked by trolls. Sony didn't push back at them. Um, Marvel and Disney didn't push back when uh, Captain Marvel's Rotten Tomatoes score got just torpedoed again by by trolls, not by people who had actually seen the movie. And Lucasfilm was quiet when John Boyega and Kelly Marie Tran were getting a lot of racist comments from, again, this kind of toxic, what's, what appeared to be like a toxic fan culture, uh, in that case, around Star Wars. How tricky, Rebecca, is it for a studio to try and maybe hit back on the very people who pay to see the movies they make? It sounds like it would be a thin line for them to walk. Well, it's interesting. I think initially the well-intended idea was that if you give these little controversies attention, you fuel them, and it would be smarter to ignore them and they'll go away. That didn't actually pan out. They tend to take on a life of their own on social media. And so studios are kind of having to recalibrate and figure out how to manage these groups uh, while sort of keeping the protecting their talent, protecting their executives and protecting the kind of spirit of the shows and films that they're hoping to make. All right, Rebecca, now you got a fresh piece posted today in The Hollywood Reporter about a producing team whose film earns an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. And as awesome as that is for them, it's bittersweet. Tell us uh, about them. Yeah, this is the team behind the Warner Brothers movie Judas and the Black Messiah. They are the first all-black producing team to be nominated for Best Picture in the 93-year history of the Oscars. It's Shaka King, who's the filmmaker, Ryan Coogler, who's best known as the director of Black Panther, but he's a producer here, and Charles King, who's the um, finance and production company, who's founded the finance and production company Macro, uh, which partially funded the film. And it's bittersweet for them, they say, because it took 93 years. They're, you know, gratified and honored, but also kind of um, grappling with the 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 feeling of how long this honor has excluded so many people. And they've had their minds on, on this uh, going back to 2014, right? That's when they had a, a kind of a every Sunday afternoon gathering. Yeah, at that time, the group were not gathering with the intention of making a movie. They were uh, part of a group trying to figure out how Hollywood might respond to the very public uh, police killings of black men that were in the news at the time. Uh, Shaka King, the filmmaker, made what became sort of a viral video, uh, and he and Ryan Coogler and Charles King and many other folks who were prominent in black Hollywood ended up really sort of forming an alliance built around their values that down the line would result in this Best Picture-dominated film. And you mentioned, Rebecca, how it's, it's they're in a weird spot, right? Because they want to be happy because of what this could mean for black filmmakers, but then also not be too happy because, as you said, the last 93 years. Yeah, I mean, Shaka King brought the analogy of where he grew up in, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, when the neighborhood started to gentrify, they finally got decent grocery stores. And on the one hand, he was happy about it because finally you could get some good produce in the area. And, but he was also disturbed because for all those years when the neighborhood had been just black people, there was not uh, anybody worried about them having healthy food. So there's this mixed feeling of, yeah. wow, this feels great. But look at all the people who didn't get this opportunity. That is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Read her tweets and find links to her story at that Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ed. All right, so I'm probably not going to see Godzilla versus Kong because, you know, it's a theater and all. And I don't know. But I don't know. An amusement park? Maybe I will. Maybe I'll do that instead. We'll find out uh, what uh, you need to know when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. All right, now something for both the thrill seekers and the skittish. On Monday, Los Angeles and Orange Counties will enter the orange tier, and that means amusement parks in these areas can reopen at 25% capacity. But how safe is it to wait in line and get on rides while the coronavirus is still out there? Local theme parks from Six Flags to Universal Studios to Disneyland have announced reopening dates for next month, but you'll need an online reservation to get in. So if you're like me and really enjoy amusement parks, but the idea of being next to so many strangers and their germs still freaks you out, we have Robert Niles to answer your concerns. He's editor of the website Theme Park Insider and has the very latest on safety protocols. Robert, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, when thinking about maybe getting uh, theme park tickets, Robert, catch us up on the rules for reopening theme parks in California. Well, for starters, you better be a California resident or you're not going to get in at all. That's the top. Uh, the top new rule at this point is that uh, everything is restricted to California residents. Going to have to go onto the park's official websites and make a reservation. You might need to buy a new ticket because annual passes are either gone or maybe not being accepted right away. And then once you've got the reservation, bring your mask and uh, get ready to ride. Annual passes. I I bought one like a week before everything was shut down last year. Do I have to check to make sure that that still works? I can't just show up and say, hey, I need to get in. Yeah, Disneyland has basically canceled its annual pass program. So everyone should have gotten refunds on those by now. Uh, Universal Studios Hollywood has announced their uh, reopening, but they're not taking annual passes for regular admission for the first month or so. But they are having Uh. some bonus days for annual pass holders. So you can still log in and make a reservation. You just have to make sure you're doing the right date. Okay, that's the one I'm thinking about because that's what I have, Universal. Now, okay, in terms of safety protocols, um, waiting in line, Robert, has got me a little freaked out because let's just use Universal as an example. Um, the mm-hmm. Simpsons ride, when you walk into Krusty Land, sure, there's an open area for the line, but then you're going to get into a, a structure where the line gets really, really not very roomy. Yeah, uh, theme parks going to have to get a little creative because the state's new rules say that you can't have waiting areas inside. Uh, obviously, you're going to have to go inside to be on some of these rides, but uh, the majority of the queue, the back and forth, whatever waiting is going to have to be done outdoors. So parks are going to have to get a little creative with the way that they uh, they manage their queues over the next few months. Okay. And there's an interactive part of that ride, uh, Robert. I'm sure you know um, when the baby sneezes, uh, they squirt water <laughs> in your face and on you a little bit. I, you think that might somehow not be there anymore I, the, it, the, it's probably not going to be there unless they take that as an opportunity to hit you with some hand sanitizer okay good because yeah <laughs> I, I was just kind of thinking about how that might freak me out or freak someone yeah, no, out the, yeah. the, the 4d effects have to go away for a while as well and there's a limit to how long an indoor attraction can last so i, I know disney had shut down some of their uh big performances like the uh the frozen indoor show uh, but they wouldn't be able to do that anyway because of a 15-minute time limit on indoor attractions as well. Okay, because I think I remember Shrek, too. There's some kind of component where it feels like you're getting wet, and I don't think anyone wants that right now. Um, no, that's just whatever you bring with you is sweat. That's all <laughs> you're you going to go. have. Robert, what about roller coasters where there might be kind of a loop-de-loop? You know, I, 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 could, I just can imagine you're starting the loop, you start to scream, and you go through the loop, and you come right back through all that stuff. Well, I mean, the good news is you're probably doing about 60 miles an hour or something. And, uh, you know, that moves the air around a bit. A real interesting thing, though, in the state rules is that if your mask falls off in a ride, the park has to provide you with a replacement. So that's something to keep in mind. And if too many people's masks fall off on a ride, the state does have the right to tell a theme park you can't run that ride anymore. So they're going to be checking to make sure yours is on and on securely. They're going to find, Robert, so many masks on the ground of these rides. So let's just say Harry Potter at Universal. At the end of the day, there's going to be hundreds of masks down there. How, how are people not going to lose their masks? Uh, along with the cell phones, the glasses, yeah. the sunglasses, the keys. Uh, yeah, lost and found is always an adventure. I don't think anyone's going to be claiming used masks, though. <laughs> 
I don't think the lost and found will have a stack of masks that people are looking for. We're talking to theme park insiders uh, Robert Niles about Southern California amusement park uh, reopenings. Um, Theme parks have been closing California since the pandemic began. That was March yes. of 2020. We know that. Yeah. But Disney World in Florida and parks in other states have been open for a while. So, I mean, considering that we're almost at the edge of uh, being like Florida in that way, uh, how have they been doing? Uh, they seem to have been doing pretty well. I mean, everything that we've heard internally from Disney and Universal is that they've got really high guest satisfaction. People are happy. Remember, the capacities are really low. I mean, they're going to be 25% in Southern California. When we reopen, I think they're somewhere between 30 and 50% depending on the park in Florida right now. So there's going to be space in the queues. And like I said, mask mandatory, lots of hand sanitizer, lots of people wiping things down. So generally people have been pretty happy with uh, with the performance of the parks elsewhere around the country. Robert, do you know if some of these same protocols apply to say like you know, carnivals that pop up every once in a while. Sometimes you're driving on the freeway and you see like a carnival pop up. Do the, mm-hmm. do the same mm-hmm. kind of protocols apply for those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, the state has got detailed, long pages of pages of PDFs uh, judging everyone in the kind of the amusement and theme park industry at this point. And it applies to family entertainment centers. It applies to carnivals. So there are a lot of rules that uh, that uh, anyone who's running an amusement facility is going to have to abide by uh, during this pandemic. What are the dates again for some of the theme parks in Southern California that are going to open? Uh, uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain is reopening to pass holders tomorrow. Uh, general public on April 3rd. It is uh, Universal Studios Hollywood on April 16th, 15th for pass holders, and Disneyland on April 30th. All right. Robert, what, what have you been hearing from people? I mean, are, are people just itching to get back to uh, to theme parks? I mean, I, I talk about movies all the time because I love going to movies, yeah, and I don't yeah. know when I'm going to go back, although Kong and Godzilla, that, 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 might, that <laughs> movie is calling me, as I told Rebecca earlier. Um, are, are people eager that uh, you're hearing about to get back into these theme parks? Well, I think a lot of people just want this whole thing to be over, and there's some concern that we are so close to the finish line right now, and people don't want to blow it. So I think there's, uh, you know, among fans, there's, there's, I think, a lot of dedication to, let's make sure you're wearing the mask, let's make sure you're abiding by all of the rules there. And if you really, really, really want to be part of that crowd and that's the main attraction for you, you know, you're not going to find that right now. This is going to be more about the attractions themselves, the experiences, and doing it in a kind of different environment than we ever have before. That's Robert Niles, editor of Theme Park Insider. Robert, thanks a lot. Thank you. I think the second I get home, I'm just going to fire up HBO Max and play Kong versus Godzilla. I just want to get it. So, I, so I'm not tempted to, you know, do something stupid and head to a movie theater and just stuff popcorn in my face with no mask, obviously. Unless I can somehow get the popcorn in, in my mouth through the mask. Take two is back tomorrow, too. Talk to you then.